Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of When the Music Stops. I am joined by none other than Dr. Carol Alexander. Dr. Carol Alexander is a professor of finance at Sussex University Business School, visiting professor at Peking University HSBC Business School, and co-editor of the Journal of Banking and Finance. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Aviv. Right now, a lot of people are talking about Binance. Binance is obviously a big concern in in the space. A lot of my listeners uh, have been following what's happening. Recently, uh, people have noted that 21 countries have uh, essentially engaged in some form of regulatory crackdown against Binance, including Japan, India, uh, UK, and uh, the United States. For the, the new listeners, why is Binance something that you are, are focusing so much on in your work, in your research? Well, this time last year, it wasn't Binance, it was BitMEX. Now it's Binance, but these exchanges, what we call centralized exchanges, they're very like the electronic exchanges that you can trade on New York Stock Exchange, for example, or the um, CME platforms, which trade derivatives. Um, So these centralized exchanges pop up and down all over the place and have done for the last um, four or five years. And they're not always domiciled in a particular country. For example, Coinbase is um, in the registered in the US and it's regulated by the US market regulators. Bitstamp is in Europe. The CME, which trade derivative products like Binance and many other exchanges, has um, their Bitcoin futures and options and Ether futures and options registered in in the UK. So, I mean, these are properly regulated exchanges. But BitMEX and Bitstamp and Huobi and OKEX and all these other exchanges are not regulated. In fact, Binance isn't even registered in the Cayman Islands. Some of these are known to be registered in tax havens such as Malta or Cayman Islands or and places like Hong Kong, but they've escaped any form of regulation. And up until recently, they have been doing whatever they like. And in particular, their business model has been attracting a lot of unsuspecting ordinary investors who have lost a lot of money. You know, it's strange to me, the rules and regulations are there to protect consumers, but the overwhelming majority of the retail investors when you ask them where they want to go and trade, they typically default to a, an exchange like Binance. Why do you think people are flocking to an exchange like Binance if there are very few regulations that are there to protect them? Well, you can liken this to the Steve Jobs evangelist approach to the growth of Apple. Elon Musk did the same thing. It's a sort of, I mean, Apple was before social media, but Elon Musk used a lot of social media to get disciples for the products. They sell a vision, right? And this is exactly what Binance has been doing with their business model, where they have Binance angels who aren't paid. They're just devotees of uh, of Binance or, or trading crypto in general. And they voluntarily translate all the material that Binance puts up, which is very educational and makes them look very above board, into um, Thai or Sanskrit or what, you know, whatever language or alphabet the local company, the local jurisdiction reads so that 
ordinary investors are coming from pensioners, people that are not thriving in this gig economy, which my generation has forced on the younger generation, making not only climate change, but the sort of economic wreck that we've left the young forces them to take several jobs. They don't have enough money to, to live properly. And, you know, so there's the temptation, obviously. And the Binance angels are spreading the message and making ordinary investors think, well, I can't get any interest on savings at all because, you know, this is this is the big problem just before the 2008 crisis. The credit crunch, the collateralized debt obligations and the credit default swaps and all these toxic credit products built on mortgages for men who or women who who couldn't afford them but were sold these mortgages and then they were packaged up and sold on just to create yield because Alan Greenspan kept interest rates far too low for far too long and starved bankers of what they need and you know ordinary people as well who want to get a return on their their, their savings you know, I couldn't agree with you more with a lot of what you said. It looks like my generation, people who are entering the, the workforce and getting their first, you know, serious paychecks, they're trying to find out where can they invest, where can they get a return. And a lot of them are looking for that get rich quick, that ticket to the upper middle class, the opportunity to buy a home, which right now is very, very hard to do. And it seems like Binance and a lot of DeFi is really selling the idea that you can get very rich very quickly. I think that's kind of the concept here. And I think it's even more broad to apps like Robinhood and Wealthsimple that are also trying to encourage people in this idea that you can get very wealthy very quickly without doing a lot of work. Yeah, agreed. One of your, your blogs back in July, it's titled Almost All Bitcoin Price Transmission Comes from Binance. And in this, uh, in this excellent blog and all of your blog posts are available at coalexander.com, you essentially... Uh, make the claim that 80%, 70 to 80% of the price of Bitcoin, and I believe Ether at any moment, is really defined by a single exchange, Binance. Mm. And, and that seems very fascinating how a space that is, you know, has so many different exchanges all around the world, how one exchange could provide so much price discovery. Especially since um, a year ago, it wasn't even on the radar. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Because if you look at the academic papers that I've written on price discovery and also volatility, you know, risk transmissions, they were about BitMEX. We didn't even look at Binance a year ago. It's interesting in crypto that things move and change so quickly. Mm -hmm. Because of the lack of regulations, it seems like anyone can get anywhere in a very, very short amount of time. Um, we can talk about FTX later, but that's obviously the new kid on the block that's, uh, you know, making a lot of noise. They're much cleverer than the others, by the way. Got to be really careful of FTX, Alameda Research and so forth. Much, much cleverer. There's this thing called toxic flow, all right? And this is why Binance has been so successful, because there are two types of traders. There's the informed and the uninformed. And I'm afraid to say that uh, ordinary retail investors are classified as uninformed. <laughs> Could not agree more. <laughs> well, they can't move the market the way they want. So they don't have that information. That's the information they don't have. It's not possible to be informed about the direction of Bitcoin price movements because there's no agreement on the fundamental value of Bitcoin. It doesn't really have any intrinsic fundamental value or not one that there's in a consensus agreement on. So how can anybody be informed about the direction of price movements? However, 
Big professional traders like Alameda Research can be informed about the direction of price movements because they know they're going to do a coordinated trade across all the derivatives exchanges to force prices of Bitcoin, or it could be any other crypto, in a certain direction. And they'll stack up their chips in that direction and then make it happen. So the point is that there's this toxic flow which happens on, for example, FTX or on CME, you know, the other exchanges which where derivatives are traded that have a lot of professional traders trading against other professional traders. So there's big hedge funds, there's the investment bank prop traders, and there's the market makers, and they all are, they all run high frequency algorithms. 80% of trades on crypto are on HFT. They're just robots trading, but they're programmed to do certain strategies like they could create volatility and trade that. They can do that on option markets like Deribit. Is, I've just read one of my papers <coughs> looks at the, the net buying pressure. It, it shows that the, during um, Western trading times, there's a lot of volatility created. Uh, and my latest talk for the cryptocurrency research conference. The video will will be available at some point. It was only last week. The slides are on my website. I show that there is evidence that the way these options are traded, there's a deliberate attempt to create volatility, not moving it in a direction, just making it go up and down a lot. And that creation of, of volatility by professional traders is something that they can make a lot of money from, provided that they're not trading against some other clever robots that are counteracting the trades that they make. So the thing about Binance is that they've been so successful to bring on the retail investors like little fish. There isn't that toxic flow from professional to professional. They don't want that. That's toxic. What they want is a lot of uninformed traders that they can take the money off. And FTX traders go to Binance for those fish. It's just the same as the Frenchman fishing in the UK waters. <laughs> uh, okay, well, let's not get too political here because I've been pretty anti-French in this podcast and my, my listeners have told me to, to, to tone it down. Um, <laughs> and so, so, you know, Dr. Alexander, um, uh, I, I, I'm curious. I mean, so we have some very speculative uh, derivatives. Derivatives essentially allow you to get leverage. They allow you to have 10x leverage, 20x leverage. And in the case of something like Binance, you have something as high as 125x leverage. I don't believe this is legal in almost any Western country to have that amount of leverage. Is that fair to say that this is not yes. something that is, is considered normal or healthy? Yeah, well, it's not just the leverage. The whole way that the exchange operates is not normal and it would not be allowed in markets that are regulated. But they have actually, since um, May 19th, when a lot of retail investors started a class action against what happened on Binance, Binance and FTX have both limited leverage for new users to 20 times. But one suspects that there may, because they, Binance in particular have this sort of VIP list of traders and the fees they they pay are completely different. So it's not to say that it's completely um, banned. It may be that some traders are allowed a much larger leverage. We don't know. 
Even what you've been saying earlier sounds a lot like market manipulation and insider trading. These are typically things, again, that are very well regulated in uh, developed countries. These are things that are not allowed in developed countries. Uh, you know, extreme market manipulation, insider trading, essentially exchanges planning or working with others to force the price up or down. What are some of the largest concerns that you see for these retail fish, uh, essentially these uninformed traders and you know what what's the biggest risk that you see with all of this uh, lack of regulation well, wherever they trade if they think they're safe trading on coinbase which is regulated they're not whilst the price of whatever crypto they're trading whether it's bitcoin or ether or i don't know you know any other thousands of these coins whatever coin that they're traded if its price is influenced by manipulation on the unregulated exchanges, and we know for things like Bitcoin and Ether and most major coins that's the case, then they're going to be susceptible to whatever battles are going on on those trade on those exchanges. So, you know, you may have FTX traders, the Alameda Research or the Cumberland Capital traders creating a lot of volatility on um, Litecoin, for example. And if you're holding Litecoin on Coinbase, then that increases the risk that you run of making or, or losing a lot of money. So it sounds like the market isn't well regulated, especially offshore and in these jurisdictions where these centralized exchanges live. It's not regulated at all. And, and, and what that means is that the entire market, even the market that lives in the regulated parts of the world, like the U.S. with Coinbase, are are really affected. I think that's kind of what your research is showing. Yes. That you 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 are not safe from the the Binance pump and dumps and market manipulation and insider trading and artificial volatility and all of this. You're you're not safe wherever you go at this point. Exactly right. So let, let's let's talk a bit about something that I wasn't very aware of until about a month ago, and I'm not sure if, uh, if the listeners are aware of this, and that's the Binance Insurance Fund. Uh, for starters, why does an exchange like Binance need an insurance fund, and, and what is an insurance fund in the case of Binance? Binance, and in fact, all the other unregulated exchanges, Bybit, OKEx, Huobi, they all have the same business model. They're not just an exchange. They're a broker and a central counterparty. So what do I mean by that? Uh, you can't get an account on Binance by uploading Canadian dollars or whatever it is you, your currency is. That's right. You have to upload Bitcoin or Ether or, or Tether, or you know that's a stable coin, supposedly, um, or, or some sort of digital currency. And so it used to be that the Binance subsidiaries that have now been banned allowed you to change, for example, the UK would allow you to, to transfer money, uh, pound sterling from your bank account to the Binance subsidiary, and then get Tether, which you could then uh, trade on the Binance exchange. But these have now been banned. That's right. Nevertheless, you can go to Binance.com and you can change pound sterling for Tether. So they are a broker, okay? They are also a central counterparty. This is something that one would absolutely never allow if an exchange were regulated. It's absolutely imperative that 
the matching of trades and finding out who wins and who loses, because these derivatives are zero one games, you know, one person wins and the other person loses. Okay. And so you have to match the winners and losers together. And this happens with somebody who is not at all involved with the exchange and completely independent, what we call a central counterparty. And lots of exchanges will use one big central counterparty, like the London Clearinghouse, for example. They are very heavily regulated and they have very careful margin models that they use to assess how much leverage people should be able to use and what they, what, how much collateral they should have in order to trade. Um, that's called a maintenance margin. And if it seems that the funds are going down and because they've made a lot of loss, they need to top up their margin. This is called a margin call. They will be given notice, 24-hour notice usually. So they're, they're given a call. They have to find the funds somewhere and they go to their bank and they top up their margin account and then everything is safe. But this doesn't happen on Binance or any other of these unregulated exchanges. There's no margin call at all. What we've got at the moment, okay, let's liken it to a casino. So the exchange is also the broker. So you, when you come into the casino, you can change pounds for, for these um, plastic chips. And not only that, you can get a hundred pounds of chips for one pound because of the leverage. Okay, so you can go and gamble a hundred pounds of chips and your losses and gains are based on a hundred pounds, even though you only put one pound in when you went. Okay, that's as far as we've got. But the point is that if you've only got one pound, as soon as you lose one pound from that hundred pounds, you've got a margin call. You, you, that They should come and tell you that uh, you've got to put some more money in, but they don't. There's no margin call. So instead, they just take everything away. So you've lost everything. And the, the thing is that not only you've lost everything, but whoever you bet against isn't going to get the money that they thought they won. You, you may have lost on paper £100 because you could bet £100. Your £1 is lost, fine. But the person who thinks they're going to get £100 doesn't get it. And that's why they need the insurance fund. Right, because what's happening is that people are getting 100x leverage, which means if the price goes up just 1%, they experience a 100% price appreciation. And of course, vice versa, if the price goes down 1%, then they're experiencing essentially 100% loss. But because they uh, don't have that much collateral, that's what leverage is by definition, is that you're betting more than the actual money you have on the table. If the price drops too quickly, then there isn't enough money to pay the other party in, in the bet, in this 100x leveraged bet. That, that's pretty much what you're saying with margin calls. Yes, exactly that, yes. So what does Binance do to, to essentially compensate for the fact that you know Bitcoin prices can go down 5% in a minute, how does Binance account for, for you know, these extreme price swings where people don't have enough collateral to pay off the other counterparty? What, what are they doing? They use the insurance fund. So they take over the position and they, what they call, clear it in the open market. If prices didn't move at all, then they would just give that 100 chips or whatever it was, it's still 100 chips, to the winning counterparty if that winning counterparty chooses to fold to their position. But they may, they may hold it. They may carry on holding it. They don't have to cash in their winnings. Now, smart ones would, of course. In fact, 
the players that actually created that big directional move, the ones that used spoofing and other manipulative strategy to force the price down five to five percent in a, in a minute, uh, are going to chip them. Are going to cash in as quickly as they can. But uninformed traders aren't going to do that. They may think, oh. Well, I've won 100. I'm, I'll hang on. I'll, I may win another 200. But the ones that, that are informed, they know that's it. They'll cash in. So the insurance fund has to pay up straight away. And that's the problem is when the informed traders have created the mass wipeout of retail investors, they are going to cash in very quickly and they get the money from the insurance fund. And this is exactly what I believe Alameda Research and Cumberland Capital have been doing on Binance. The Alameda Research people are actually, you know, they, they own FTX is their casino, but they don't play in that casino. They play on Binance. Right. So do you believe that this insurance fund is solvent or do you believe that there is a likely issue where the insurance fund just can't pay out the incredible losses uh, from Binance having to take on these extreme positions during market volatility? Binance um, do top up their own insurance fund. Uh, I mean, insurance funds, that they, they come from the retail investors whose positions they take, they, they get a little bit into the insurance fund, but Binance have to top up the value of their insurance fund. And they don't reveal exactly how much they are doing this. But I mean, Binance obviously has a lot of money, so they can afford to do that. But I mean, it started happening in February, and then it happened again, 18th of April, they got their fingers burnt there. And then when it came to 19th of May, I think they saw what was coming, you see, they took over all these positions, and then they started trading professional trader against professional trader, battling it out. And their trading robots were not as good as the FTX ones, as the Alameda ones, or the Cumberland ones, that they're not as good. And they were losing a lot of money and the price was, was, was going up on huge volatilities. And then I think it's, it's the Binance Casino. They just turned the lights off. They pulled the plug. They stopped the electricity. And that's why the whole platform went down. And your, your recent blog from August 20th, Trading Operations of the Binance Insurance Fund, really clearly shows this lights out moment. Mm. And that's what Francis Kim was describing in a previous episode. May 19, I was shorting the Bitcoin futures on Binance and I was seeing uh, major profits in a short amount of time. I took a screenshot just before I tried to cash out and my account was showing the balance of uh, the tune of $171,000. When I try to close out of my position, the button wouldn't respond. Nothing would work. So ultimately that, that uh, position was liquidated and the $171,000 that I was supposed to realize vanished. It looks like from the time of 13.15 for about two hours on May 19th, all trading volume is completely stopped, but the price is recovering despite this. Now, what's also interesting is that you're describing how FTX is essentially gaming Binance. That's what I suspect. And the challenge as well is that unlike a regulated exchange, it's hard to get a lot of data. There's a lot of stuff that's happening behind a curtain and we're told to just trust, you know, and, and have faith 
that what's happening behind the curtain is going to be okay. Over a thousand times now, we, we open the curtain to find out that it's actually nothing there and that everything is collapsing. But this time, surely it will be different. So let's talk about that May 19th outage. So what, what do you think was really happening when Binance decided to, you know, by total coincidence, shut off all trading in, in, in peak volatility? What happened there? I think their insurance fund traders were just not up to scratch. They they couldn't match the speed and the size of the other professional traders that were still trading. You know, it's like the referee saying, end of the game, you know, and Binance were the referees, so they could do what they wanted. That's right. And again, th this is really a demonstration of conflict of interest, where you're both the player and the referee. Yeah. That's, you know, obviously the concern here. Dr. Alexander, going back to the essentially the football match that's happening between FTX and Binance, a lot of this is happening behind the scenes, behind the curtain. We can't see what is going on. Now, your research, you use a lot of statistical analysis. You're, you're trying to pull the data that you, you have available to you. How is the lack of transparency affecting your research? And what can you say with confidence in terms of the data and, and the work that you've published? Well, trying to substantiate this um, hypothetical story that I've just been telling you about Alameda research traders, you know, playing football on Binance and then the Binance referee pulling the, the plug or blowing the whistle is very, very difficult. But my strategy is always, if you're, you know, investigating something, follow the money. And the money, the blood of this whole crypto derivatives trading explosion is is Tether. This stable coin has a terrible reputation. Tether has been such a huge concern. We've had many episodes on this podcast talking to people like Bennett Tomlin and Caspiancy and, and others about Tether and, and the risks there. For now, I mean, in, in the simplest terms, why is Tether such a systemic risk in, in this discussion? And, you know, how does Tether tie in, tie in here with Binance? Well, let's leave aside the uh, reserves of Tether, because I think we could talk about that, but that's not actually the central issue at the moment. The first thing is to note that Alameda Research and Cumberland Capital have been the direct receivers of more than 60% of all the Tether ever minted. Now that's 65 billion or so, and more than 60% has gone to these two trading firms. Now, it may be that's an over-exaggeration, but still it's a huge amount, $30 billion worth of Tether going to these guys at some point. But then we've got Jump Trading, Jane Street, and other major trading outfits that are now coming in on the act. So we can expect that the issuance of Tether to these shark in professional traders is, is going to be a real issue. Now, uh, when, we, when we look at the issuance of Tether, it's difficult to know because it goes from the Tether Mint to Bitfinex, which is the exchange where they do the chain swaps. And so from Bitfinex, it goes out in the wallets on um, Ethereum blockchain, on Tron blockchain, on um, EOS, and on the original one they always used was the Omni layer, which is a, a second layer protocol of the Bitcoin blockchain. Okay, so those are the four uh, motorways that it goes out of, and you can track its flows to different wallets. And some of those wallets are identified, like, you know, directly from Bitfinex to Binance, I was recording a, 
a three billion issuance to to Binance at the end of May, following the problems with the insurance fund. I mean, I think they lost a lot of money. And so they ordered a lot more tether. Uh, Not only that, obviously, they need tether because they're a broker, they need to give it to their retail customers. And if um, that they're short of tether for whatever reason, um, because they used it into their insurance fund, then they needed to order a lot more. So um, the issuance of Tether, about a third of it does end up on Binance at some point or another. But when we look at Alameda Research and FTX, a lot of inflows go to those wallets as well, or as more than, it, than go to Binance. But a lot of outflows go as well. The net inflows to FTX are tiny because the trading volume on FTX is tiny compared with Binance, at least at the moment. So this is why I think, and I said that the Alameda guys are playing away from home all the time. They're getting that tether, but they are trading it on on Binance. You know, if you follow the money, if you see where the tether's flowing to the Cumberland wallets and then going to Binance, so it's going to the Alameda research or jump trading or Jane Street or B2C, too, and all the other sort of well-known big professional traders on these crypto derivatives, and you can see their wallets ending up on Binance, you know it's them that's creating all this manipulation. Wow. So you're essentially describing that most of the space is Binance, and this is all done mostly with the help of an unregulated stablecoin, Tether, yeah, which is the overwhelming majority of trades against a quote-unquote fiat-type pair. A synthetic US dollars. Exactly. It's exactly the same at the moment. If they were properly reserved, it would be like the Federal Reserve issuing an extra $65 billion into the money supply, um, most of it just in the last year. Um, it's more than doubled since Binance started, which is less than a year ago. How confident are we that those those uh, reserves that back, you know, almost $70 billion of these synthetic US dollars? I mean, how confident are we of those reserves? Not at all. (laughs) Because, you know, at the beginning, they refused to be audited at all. The Tether Company, capital T for the company, little t for the coin, sacked their auditors one after another. And then when the New York State Attorney went after this problem, and they they produced a a handwritten letter, well, I mean, a hand-signed letter, illegible signature, no name, from some bank in the Bahamas called Deltec bank a couple of years ago to say, yes, we have $3 billion in in reserves, because that's all it was then, $3 billion. Um, So they're supposed to have it in the bank account in the Bahamas, right? Right, in the (laughs) Bahamas. uh, And and now um, they do have to produce quarterly audits from um, last the end of last year. So I mean, we've had two and they do have an auditor. I mean, it's it's not a it's not like that Moore's place that's doing USDC USD coin with Circle. I mean, that's a little bit more above board, and um, there's only about thirty billion of that stable coin. But with Tether, the the, the audit is absolutely unsatisfactory because it's showing at least fifty percent of these sixty five or seventy billion of reserves. In other words. 30 to 35 billion of US dollars is apparently held in something called commercial paper. So that's right. What is commercial paper? Commercial paper is a short term IOU. It's it's like a loan. This is what the US money market is. It helps um, mutual funds and other 
other companies um, go into to the money market and they will increase liquidity by making short-term loans. And they're stopping doing that because the interest that they get on those loans is so low that the Federal Reserve has had to step in and take over the US money market now. But it's, it's a way that companies can get very short-term loans by paying reasonable interest. So when they say commercial paper, the question is, who are the counterparties? It's, a, it's a apparent that Tether have made loans to various counterparties that they should be able to call in at any minute and get the dollars. Right. Money markets usually no more than uh, 12 months to 18 months. So these loans should have very short periods on them. And, you know, they've probably got a few three-month loans that should be coming in and they should be getting the dollars and not the tether. The companies that loaned them should be paying back that loan within three months, 12 months, maximum 18 months. And the total amount of all those loans is about 30 to $35 billion, right? Right. Now, the question is, who are the counterparties? Um, nobody in the standard U.S. money market knows anything about the tether operations. Absolutely. And if you don't mind, uh, you know, your latest blog article, you make an excellent point uh, right around the conclusion that says, you know, the simultaneous growth of Binance and Tether begs the question whether Binance itself is the issuer of a large fraction of Tether's $30 billion commercial paper. Binance's business-to-business platform is the main online broker for Tether. So supposing Binance is in financial difficulties, possibly precipitated by using its own money rather than insurance funds to cover payments to counterparties of liquidated positions, then the tether it orders and gives to customers might not be paid for with dollars or Bitcoin or any other form of cash, but rather with an IOU. So this seems to be another incredible systemic risk that no well-regulated market would allow. What is the concern there? You know, just spelling it out for someone who doesn't understand financial markets very well. What is the concern with Binance essentially providing commercial paper to Tether? Not just Binance. I mean, look at Alameda and, and maybe Cumberland and any big consumer of Tether could be getting it on loan. And, and then they're operating in the crypto markets, forcing up prices of Bitcoin to, what, $60,000 per Bitcoin when there's no fundamental value. I mean, this is the existential threat here because it's like an edifice made of candy floss. There is no fiat in the system. Well, there is fiat in the system. It's coming from retail investors and it's being taken out of the system by professional sharks to be replaced by a lot more candy floss. Right. And so what ends up happening is that retail investors give away their real money, that real money Mm -hmm. exits and the paper wealth of the space explodes. But of course, if this paper wealth is just wealth on paper and it's and is, you know, potentially will evaporate in the future. What happens is that we all get made, essentially. Yeah, that's it. So another thing that's interesting here is that the more you you talk about all these different relationships that you're observing in your research, the more it seems like in a well-regulated market, you would want to separate all of these different roles and make sure that there's no, you know, collusion. Two parties that are playing against each other are not also giving each other loans and also holding each other's commercial paper and also you know, engage in all sorts of backroom deals. I mean, th- th- this looks like just wildcat banking, you know, meets, you know, the crystal meth of finance. Th- th- this looks absolutely <laughs> insane when you start to dig into to your blog and your research. But one has to substantiate any story that seems potentially credible with with proper research. So 
I'm working with Matt Ranger, who's a data analyst, who's also, um, I think, been on your show and has, is a great blogger too. We got together to uh, to do a little bit more concrete research on, on this thesis. Absolutely. And Matt, is an, he was an excellent guest. His specialty is economics. And it's just, it's such a pleasure listening to him explain sort of basic terms that, that are often kind of go over people's heads uh, when they enter the space. Everything is a hedge for inflation that's not the U.S. dollar. That's the definition of inflation, right? Inflation is a change in the price of the U.S. dollar. So this coffee mug next to my hand here is a hedge for inflation because as the price of the U.S. dollar goes down, the price of that mug goes up. But, you know, in terms of the research and academic papers, uh, one thing that I hear about you is that you write, you know, just an incredible amount of papers. This year alone, just in 2021, you published 12 academic papers. Almost all of them, I think, for the most part, are to do with derivatives trading and the crypto space as a whole. So I think there's, de you know, there's a lot of uh, work there. What, what are some things that you feel very confident in terms of being able to show with statistical proof that, you know, there's some relationship here. Where, where is the, you know, the, the smoking gun that you found in your work? Well, I would say the most sophisticated smoking gun uh, that you can see up there at the moment is the model that was built by my PhD student, Daniel Heck, and Andreas Cake, who was also actually a PhD student of mine, who is now another professor at, at Sussex. And it's a very sophisticated uh, econometric model called the multiplicative error model, or the log uh, multiplicative error model, with a lot of bells and whistles on, which um, looks at the transmission of volatility in crypto, in the crypto multiverse and also identifies which exchanges are the main emitters of volatility and which exchanges are the main receivers of volatility during different times of day. And also volume, you, it, it, you, can, you can do it on volatility, you can do exactly the same model on, on volumes as well. And we see quite different patterns there. Not surprisingly, Binance, uh, the, the tether perpetual on Binance is the big transmitter of volatility. Otherwise, the, the spot, the, the ordinary, you know, without any derivatives, just the, 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 the Bitcoin tether cross is a big emitter of volatility. And it goes to other derivatives exchanges like Huobi, to Bybit and to Coinbase as well. And the, I mean, there's something called an inverse perpetual, which for other exchanges is quite an important product and is becoming increasingly important on, um, on Binance as well. And that allows you to, to trade the actual US dollar rate rather than the tether rate. Um, but you still, you, you, you don't need to onboard or offboard with, with dollar or fiat. Anyway, so um, I would say that was probably the most sophisticated uh, diagnostic tool that we've built. The volume flows, by the way, uh, are many from Coinbase. And that's very fascinating. Do, do you think that, you know, Coinbase, a lot of people have said that they act as essentially the, the place where people can, can essentially get those poker chips and then send them to the real casino. Is that really where the retail money is coming in to play in these incredibly speculative uh, games. I'm not sure that it would be sent to other casinos, but Coinbase is a great gauge of retail investor interest. Because they're well regulated and because they're in, in the United States where, like, I, I believe it's a majority of 
trading and speculation and the retail investors come from. So that's why Coinbase is a great kind of uh, an indicator. It's a gauge, you know, um, and, and they don't do derivatives, at least not, not at the moment. They have talked about that now, but they don't do derivatives. So it's mainly um, people that are happy with trades they understand, just simple like foreign exchange trading on the spot market. And so that's a gauge of retail investor sentiment. When the volume, volumes go up on Coinbase, that means that time is ripe to start doing your volatility arbitrage trading. Um, so what will happen is that um, Alameda or Cumberland or Jump Trading or whatever will put on a long position on OKEX or Bybit or one of these other exchanges. And then they'll pump up the Bitcoin Tether Perpetual to um, a very high price, at which point they'll sell on the other exchanges. It's a a sort of volatility arbitrage between exchanges. And sometimes they do it on on exchanges with smaller volumes, like the Deribit Perpetual, which is really there for hedging Deribit options, much smaller volumes. So it's much easier to pump up the price there. And then if if other exchanges follow that price, then they, they can liquidate their positions on the other exchanges. This kind of ties into your work more broadly. You wrote a book, Market Risk Analysis, in 2008, and you you know you started a YouTube channel talking about this. This entire space looks like it just has an incredible market risks. What are some uh, parallels that you see from you know 2008 and other uh, risky markets that you see in the crypto market? And yeah, what are some insights there for people who who, who are going to make the claim that this time it'll be different? it will be just fine the way it is right now. Well, I mean, the major parallel is this low yield environment that we've had for much too long and that led up to the 2008 crisis. It was all about seeking yield, not finding it anywhere else that led to very, very risky investments. And it's exactly the same situation now. But the crypto market the fragmentation and the innovation in the crypto market. And we've just been talking about centralized exchanges, you know, we haven't even lifted the tiny bit of the lid to take a look at what's inside the real Pandora's box. Right. Which is the de- the DeFi, the decentralized exchanges. You know, the, it moves so fast and it reinvents itself because many of these people have not got a traditional background in financial markets. I mean, now we're, we're finding FX option traders or just standard um, foreign exchange traders going more and more into crypto. But the innovation of the products and the, the way that the trading has sprung up in, you know, 20 more different exchanges where you can get a really liquid market in Bitcoin, whereas most stocks you can just trade on one exchange. You know, all these things are um, completely unique, which is why I find crypto so interesting. Well, it was very polite of you to describe the 16-year-old retail investors as not particularly sophisticated. I would say that a lot of them are kind of stupid. That's kind of what I've noticed. I think Dogecoin is a pretty uh, great example of the intellectual capacity of my peers. When I came into the space, I had zero finance and economics background. And it's so interesting learning about finance and economics now having come from crypto and realizing how much of the same mistakes are just being recreated 
in the crypto space. I, I, I struggle to, to, to see the innovation because what I see is just mostly Ponzi schemes, uh, unregulated securities, and then of course, uh, JPEGs being sold for 100,000 US dollars back and forth. So I'm, I'm really struggling to see what we've created here of value other than just the absolute wild, wild west. The, the reputation is being completely destroyed by the gamblers. You know, you're quite right to say that retail investors should be avoiding it. But the true worth of blockchain developments with cryptocurrency at the core, I mean, there is a role for something like Ether, which is the the, the unit of gas. You know, a, a gas is measured in guay, which is 10 to the minus 18 of an Ether. Right. And and you have to explain that to your grandmother if she wants to be introduced to the future of finance. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think my grandmother would, would, would be interested. But I also, I also disagree with you about the value of F NFTs, to be honest. But, I mean, we shouldn't perhaps dis um, go too far down our line of disagreements. <laughs> well, look, if, uh, so how would you feel if, uh, if your husband gave you an NFT diamond rather than uh, uh, an engagement ring, out of curiosity? Well, I wouldn't like that. Anyway, I wouldn't want a husband. <laughs> Not anymore. I've done that. I've got the T-shirt. <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, I think I think you're on my side then, because if you're not going to take a, a ten million dollar diamond NFT, then I think that kind of that kind of proves the point. But, let but if, if my husband gave me an NFT that gave me the right to present my new, well, not my husband, it's my friend, gave me an NFT that that gave me the right to present my new company at the next Dragon's Den or whatever you call it, the next convention for venture capital funding of new companies, and I had that NFT, I think it would be very valuable. It's like a ticket. Or if, if I had an NFT that gave me um, a seat at a football match and, and all sorts of paraphernalia that go with it, then I'd be very happy for that NFT. Or a $7 million rock, JPEG. Which is what most no, NFTs no, are. No, I mean, I mean so, no, some of some of them have value. Some of them don't. I agree. I mean, but it has to settle down. But there's no point in ridiculing everything because underneath there, there's a nugget of value. There really is. Yes, and I, I, I mean, look, I, I've been saying for a long time that the nugget of value in all of blockchain is that we can essentially do censorship-resistant financial instruments of last resort which in the beginning in 2011 was, you know, buying drugs on the internet and, and evading regulations. Um, I, I'm not sure how it ex extends to things that don't require censorship resistance. For example, if you want to do, you know, a, you know, tickets, which I agree with you hundred uh, percent, an NFT tied to actual physical things becomes like a receipt, in which case it's very valuable. It's like you're buying a ticket. That's proof that you bought a ticket. You can show that proof to someone else. The question you have to ask is, is that an efficient way to solve the problem of tickets when it costs, you know, 800 US dollars in mining fees to create the NFT? So, I mean, let's let's kind of wrap it up with the big question, which is, you know, what does it look like when everything goes wrong? Right. Because we, we've seen what happens when markets are not properly regulated. We've seen that in the um, incumbent financial systems in the past. So g given your expertise, given your experience, what, what is a possible risk for the space if things go south? Well, they've gone south so many times before. They're just reinventing the risks. Every year there's a new sort of risks and, you know, and we have um, hugely volatile prices, of course, in crypto. But and obviously there's a lot of um, detritus by the wayside where many new um, 
they used to be called initial coin offerings. Now they're called IEOs or IDOs, depending on whether they go on a centralized or a decentralized platform. Um, and these are now coming back. Uh, if you look at CryptoRant.io, you can see the, the, the activity of um, uh, venture capital funding into startups that are um, basically undermining the role of the of the ordinary financial system and uh, producing peer-to-peer -peer loans or um, uh, insurance or um, any other um, role that was traditionally fulfilled by the establishment. And yes, it may, we, may, we had a big boom in ICOs where some of them like um, EOS, you know, more than 4 billion that they raised, ridiculous. Nowadays, IEOs and IDOs are, are raising around quarter of a billion, you know, 200 million or so. Um, and, um, but there's a lot of them, many more coming out. But we've been through the booms and the busts of this venture capital space um, a couple of times already. Um, and it may be that this current boom, um, a lot of them linked to NFTs and so forth, um, but also that, you know, this DeFi space is not going to last. And, you know, a year from now, because time moves very quickly in the crypto multiverse, um, it could be a year from now that um, getting money for a, a new um, startup venture is, is becomes even more difficult again. But I've no doubt that, I mean, the, um, the momentum behind decentralized finance is, is something that's, that's unstoppable now. And cryptocurrencies are the, the, like the blood of the, of the muscles and the skeleton that is DeFi built on blockchains. So cryptocurrencies are here to stay as well, of course. Uh, th this is a question that we might pull later, but I'm just curious. Uh, have you personally have you used any of the uh, the DeFi products? Have you you know loaned out some Ether and done some swaps no. on Uniswap? Okay. No, no, I, I haven't. I've been thinking. I've been looking at Next.io and things like that, and just thinking, you know what? Um, it's not something that um, I I really consider um, the credit risk of this is, is, is too high. I know about market risk pretty well, and I can manage that risk. I can understand that risk, but credit risk comes from behind. <laughs> I, I wanted to kind of wrap things up and just ask something, uh, sort of like a PSA. If someone is thinking about, like if, if there's a retail investor out there that is considering investing into crypto and they're looking at Binance, they're holding uh, their their assets in Tether. What do you have to say to that person who's considering, you know, doing what most people do, which is going on Binance and uh, trading these cryptocurrencies and these tokens? Well, I wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, if you really, really believe that there's a particular token or coin, the difference is, you know, coin has its own blockchain, token resides on another. But if there's probably a new token that you think, wow, you know, I really believe in this. It's a, a Greenpeace token or it's solar energy or something like that. And I think that this, this token has a great fundamental value that's going to be realized over the next five years. So I will buy it and I will hold it. Then do so, but don't do it on Binance. Do it on something a little bit safer like Coinbase if you can. If they don't trade it on Coinbase, they probably do on Kraken.
And for our 14 year old listeners out there, there isn't a Greenpeace token. So please don't buy that if it comes <laughs> out. Dr. Alexander is not here shilling Greenpeace token. It was, it was kind of a metaphor. And I'm sure Greenpeace token might even be out there. There's so many tokens, but I'm sure it's already dumped at this point if it's, if it's pumped. Um, l- let, me, let me just ask again another kind of clarifying question. If, if in a few months a bunch of exchanges went insolvent, disappeared, vanished, if a bunch of um, these markets you know, dried up, if everything collapsed at the same time just like the housing uh, bubble uh, collapsed, would that be surprising to you if the space just essentially uh, collapsed on its own weight in, in a few months? Would, 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 is that something that you think is, is plausible? I actually don't. Um, I, I think that the, um, the speed of reinvention and the momentum that it has for reinvention will be um, far outweigh the regulatory pulls, which are tiny. That the regulators really don't know where to start. Um, you know, we have um, that act in you know the digital assets infrastructure market infrastructure act from in Congress and Gary Gensler doing his best, but beyond that, now regulators are way behind this, and it, the learning curve gets steeper all the time. So yes, I mean there will be casualties, maybe some big ones. And um, who knows what's going to happen with Binance, but the space as a whole, it's, it's nothing stopping it. D- does it concern you that someone like Dr. Nicholas Weaver from uh, UC Berkeley believes that all of blockchain has like no computer science utility? And he's a computer science lecturer at UC Berkeley. He's been studying the space for a decade. Um, is it possible that someone like him is right about a lot of this innovation here, that it's really, again, just regulatory arbitrage and apart from ransomware and pump and dumps and Ponzi schemes, there just isn't a lot there? Well, I mean, reading his credentials as a computer scientist, he seems to know his thing. But the problem is that in this space, to really understand it, you have to be a Renaissance person. You have to understand computer science. You have to understand risk, you have to understand traditional financial markets, you have to understand venture capital funding. I mean, and who does? So I disagree with him. I think blockchain is blockchain technology is is here already everywhere and it's not going to go away. But as I said, for the, the decentralized finance part of blockchain technology, crypto assets are the the lifeblood and they're here to stay too. On that note, I, I would like to ask, is there anything else you wanted to, to say or talk about that is sort of critical for someone who's looking at Binance and, and concerned about the risks? Is there anything in your latest work that you feel you know, you've, you've missed out so far in this discussion? No, I think we've, we've been through the risks of Binance and how um, retail investors are the fodder for some sharks. So, you know, do avoid Binance, please. Okay, well, you heard it here first. Avoid Binance. I know there are some incredibly promising uh, tokens out there, um, and you're 14, and your parents gave you your first bit of allowance. But just you know, maybe maybe hold on for a second, get yourself a bicycle first before you 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 throw all your money in an unregulated offshore <laughs> exchange with 125x leverage. Get out and enjoy the weather. <laughs> get out and enjoy the weather. This is Dr. Alexander's here to tell you you should probably go outside. 
and try to try to meet friends in the real life and not just on Twitter. I mean, uh, look, look at me. I'm I've grown. I'm 30 years older and I've only been on Twitter for a year. So, you know, ask yourself how that happened. And that's because it's just not a healthy place. Dr. Alexander, where can people follow your work? What do you want people to where where can they seek out what you're talking about? Is is your blog the best place to, to understand what you're working on? Uh, well, just my website in general. Um, it's uh, you can just log on to coalexander.com and and explore it. There is one section with the learning materials because I put all my old um, lecture notes and courses that I taught there for anybody to download, um, which you do have to just sign up a little form for. But otherwise, you can access everything free. And, you know, your uh, your website is really well done. I mean, you have everything there. You have your public talks, your academic papers, your blog, learning resources, the books, your PhD students, your bio. It's it's and it's very easy to navigate. And it's it's really nice. I, I'm did, did you do the website? Your... Did you do you like the meteor on the homepage? Absolutely. When I first did it, it was really, really big. So I had to reduce the size. But, you know, I did it on Wix. It's so easy, much better than WordPress. Yeah, you know, for a second there, I thought the meteor was coming at me, and I, I jumped out of my chair. Um, but then I realized it was just incredible special effects. So you had me there for a second. It's very um, easy. Just download it from Wix. It's, it's one of their standard videos. Absolutely. So uh, definitely check out the website, coalexander.com. That's coalexander.com. Uh, thank you again. Oh, thank you, Abby. Thank you so much yeah. for joining me, and I really appreciate your time. And yours, and yours.